Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's National Mission. We're here to come alongside you as we journey through life under the cross. What does it look like to care for our neighbors in body and soul? How do we tend to our own body and soul? How can we speak up for life? And finally, how do we share the faith with the next generation? Join us as we have these conversations and learn together. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, here with guest Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the previous episode, we talk about family by birth and family by rebirth, who the family is in the context of the kingdom of God. And now we get to move on to the role of the family. Essentially, what are the family's marching orders? What has God given the family to do? Pastor, welcome. Would you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I'm sorry for all the listeners. You have to listen to my gravelly nonsense after you have such a nice radio voice, Steph. It's really great. But I'm pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, which is great. Been here for four years. Uh, my wife and I live in Round Rock, Texas, so suburb north of Austin. We have uh, four children, two married now, all of a sudden in the last six months, two marriages, wow. and uh, two boys in high school at home. God be praised. Yes. Wow. Wonderful. Okay. So you've kind of hit a new level of family here. I know. I know. It's getting bigger, which is really great. And now we're, it's now, it's our, It's just waiting for grandkids time. So that's, that's fantastic. I don't, I don't feel older, but I'm ready. I, something happened when the kids started kind of dating, uh, late high school, getting into college and, and it started to get serious. And I think most dads sort of freak out. And I, all of a sudden was like, all right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> it's, it's grand. It's grandpa time. So. <laughs> it's time to level up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Pastor, you're here today, you know, speaking of your family, you're here today, of course, to talk about the family. And you, being a Lutheran pastor, have spent a lot of time, I'm sure, studying what Martin Luther has to say about the family. Dr. Martin Luther spends a lot of time talking about the three estates, not to be confused with the two kingdoms. So, Pastor, what are the three estates that Luther talks about, and why is this a helpful distinction to make? Ooh, I love that question. That's a that's a nice softball sort of here you go. Because a lot when you most people, when they think of the kind of social or political influence of Martin Luther, they think of the doctrine of the two kingdoms: right hand kingdom, left hand kingdom, or sometimes it's called the two governments, the way the, or the two swords. There's the sword of political might. That's the the sword of the sword, if you will. That's where people get thrown into prison or or killed on the battlefield. And there's the sword of the word, the sword of the spirit, which is how the Lord governs in his right-hand kingdom, the church, where he rules with the forgiveness of sins and with the kindness of the gospel. And and normally, when people think of Luther and his insight into social structure, those are the things that they talk about. The problem is, well, Luther did talk that way, but not nearly as much as he discussed the three estates. And that's this the doctrine that these two authorities are exercised in three different locations. There is the state, but there is and there is the church, and then there is the the estate of the family. And the three estates thinking in terms of three estates is so much more helpful because number one, it helps us to to get rid of this oversimplistic duality of two kingdoms because there's no real place for us a lot of times in that conversation and it it doesn't c- capture the whole reality of how the lord has created us so so much more often than you hear luther talking about two kingdoms you see him talking about the three estates sometimes he'll call it uh the altar the city and the courthouse 
so, so we could say the hearth and the gate and the throne. The, the, the three estates are these three locations where all of us are, and, and perhaps the genius of Luther is to recognize that that all of us participate in all three estates. If you just Google three estates, it normally will come up with like the French Revolution, and it'll talk about the medieval three estates that the Catholic Church taught, those who pray, those who fight, those who work. And what, what Luther really does when he transforms this idea of the medieval idea of the three estates is he says, look, these are not silos. You are not part of one estate, those who pray, the monastery, or the priesthood, or those who work, the family, or those who fight, the rulers, and the, those who are in the military, that all of us participate in all three estates. That was one of the kind of the errors that led to this monastic idea that if you're holy, then you can't be married because you belong to the holy estate and not to the common estate. Hmm. You belong to the praying estate and not to the working estate. So when you entered into the monastery, you took three vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience, and all of those vows were to remove you from the family and from the economy and from the state so that you would you would be set apart and be holy. And Luther says, no, no, uh, th that is idolatry and wrong. It not only offends the gospel, but it also offends God's created order. So Luther goes back to the very beginning and identifies these three estates, two of them instituted before the fall into sin, that is the family, when God put Adam to sleep and made Eve and woke Adam up and gave them to one another, husband and wife, the two become one flesh, have dominion over the world, be fruitful and multiply. There's the estate of the family, instituted by God before the fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. It's so beautiful. And also the institution of the estate of the church. That uh, Luther sees when the Lord stood up this tree and he connected a promise to the tree that they were supposed to believe by faith on the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. So that they were to go to that tree and worship God by faith alone. They weren't supposed to see what, what was threatened there. They were supposed to believe God and trust in him and be justified by faith. So, so the Lord set up the, the, the church and the family in the garden. Then after the fall comes the state, which is an extension of the family, uh, which is a curb to sin. So I've also oftentimes simplified the three estates like this, that the Lord has established uh, the state and the family and the church, the church for eternal life, the family for temporal life, and the state for little death. <laughs> and, and that kind of gets to the point is that the state is to bring about little deaths to prevent the death of everything. So when the state executes someone, they're putting them to death so that that person doesn't kill everybody else. That's the idea of the state. So it's a, it's an instrument of death, which is, just, I wish the state would kind of have that self-awareness that it is an instrument of death for the purpose of life so that death doesn't get out of hand. Uh, and so we have the three estates instituted by God. And there's so much more to think about and to consider in those and the way they interact with one another. But that's the basic idea of the three estates. And it's super helpful. So what you're saying is that the idea of the three estates that was actually swirling around before Luther's time, he was born into this context. But what he did was pretty much blow everyone's minds just like this is what you say about family, church, and state, but actually they all meld together in this beautiful harmony of how God has designed the world and then the blessings that he's given us even within the fallen creation. Yeah. The picture that I use is 
So, so Luther's the clearest place to see Luther sort of describe the three estates altogether is in his great confessions concerning Christ and the Supper. And at the at part three, he just sort of writes down his whole doctrine. And he goes through creation and, and fall and redemption and sanctification. And and so it's kind of a, a dogmatic ordering of things. And the three estates actually comes in when he's talking about Jesus. And you wouldn't expect it there. I think you would expect it to be connected to creation, but it's it's connected to redemption. And here's, I think, how it happened. Mm. If you could imagine a, a huge home with three big chambers, and they're they're all together. So it's just a, that's the original institution of the three estates. You're living in all three of them, and you'd have different roles depending on them. So all of us are members of the family and the state and the church in different ways. What happened was that ancient home collapsed, and on top of the ruins, there were three little huts that were built, the state and the church and the family, and you had to live in one or the other. Well, one of those huts that was built was the monastic order. Here's how to please God by living the holy life. Well, Luther theologically overthrew that monastic order by the gospel. Look, we, we get into heaven by the forgiveness of sins, not by our works. And so so the gospel overthrows that, and when it, it tumbles, it knocks over the other two houses. Like the two huts kind of fall over. The whole structure of, of the society falls over when the gospel is preached. And the result is now Luther can, in the rubble, he can see the pattern of the original building that's underneath. And he, and he says, aha, it, we were never meant to live up in one or the other or the other, but in all three of them. And so that's, I think, the theological history of how of how Luther was able to see this, and and it just captures his mind. It's it's all over the place. When he, for example, he writes a a little essay on the war against the Turks, and he's critiquing Islam, and he he says Islam destroys the church, the family, and the state. So so it's it's just the framework of his own mind because he's able to see this as a fundamental reality of creation, and it's it's there. It's it's creeping around everybody's theology. The Reformed have it when they talk about like sphere sovereignty. If you've ever heard that kind of conversation, but they just don't have it as clean as Luther does because they'll have four spheres or five or six spheres. They don't they don't have it down to the basics of the of the church, family, and state. Is there a hierarchy of the three? Where does the family reside? Yeah, there at, there is, but it's it's um the state is always last. That's just the that's really the hierarchy. And sometimes, so when you list them, sometimes you'll find Luther and the Lutheran theologians talk about family, church, and state. Sometimes it'll be church and family and state. And so it's depending on the context and what's going on, uh, what to what's emphasized. It's so the hierarchy is always we don't know who's first or second, but we always know who's third, who's last, and that's very important because. The state has something like an inferiority complex. It is always the least important. And, and this is true for all of us. Like politically, things can be going terribly, but if you have a good church and you have a good family, if you have a good home, the political nonsense is really, it, it affects you, but it doesn't affect you like crazy. I mean, it can, especially in times of war and famine, all the political stuff can can start to affect you. But But it's what matters least. But it wants to matter most. It wants all the news to be about politics. It wants all the conversation to be about the state. The state is like the Napoleon of the of the estates that it has like little man complex and always wants to be the center of attention. And one of the ways that we do spiritual warfare is by giving attention to the the church and the home above the state. Hmm. We don't ignore the state, but we don't let it capture our imagination and all our attention and energy. That's a. Uh, it's part of our spiritual warfare is to make sure that 
the the blessings of the home and the blessings of the church are extolled in our imagination. So the state we want to understand as a necessary and unfortunate extension of the family after the fall. And so the way that that Luther describes it, and this is some of the most profound political thinking that you can think about. It's in the Luther's discussion of the fourth commandment in the large catechism. He says, all authority derives from the authority of parents, especially the, the authority of father, but also father and mother. So, so all the authority in the state is derivative of the authority of parents, the authority that God gave to Adam and Eve, our father and our mother. We don't call Adam and Eve our queen and king, a king and queen. We call them our father and our mother because that's more important. And sometimes the parents can't train the children like they want to, so they go and find a student. And now you have the institution of a school growing out of the family. Or uh, sometimes families can't defend from the great threat of enemies coming in. So we band together and, and form an army. And now you, in some ways you have a nation and a court, and all of these things are uh, built up from the family so that the state is there to serve especially the family also the church in a in a important way but uh, and we're pretty confused on that but but as we need to we can say this very clearly that the the state ought to serve the family it's there to protect the life that comes forth from the family and if we if we mess that up like we are now i mean we, our government is very tempted to think that it is the source of all life it is the source of all authority and it can do things like define marriage oh my goodness the the government is like a million miles away from having the authority to define what marriage is i mean first of all marriage is a reality itself and second of all even if it was defined it wouldn't be up to the government to do it i mean but so, so when it does something so brash and irrational and ridiculous as to say we have the authority to define what marriage is, even if they define it right, it's such gall to think that they have that authority. But that's what we see that the, our, in our own time, the government is tempted to think that the family serves the government and not the opposite, that the institution of government serves, serves the family. So that that is always, that's shifted. So... It's good for us to be training young people to be wise so that they can serve in government and and bring that kind of sanity into the government that's simply not there now. We want to be trying to restore the understanding of, of natural law and priorities and what authority, where it comes from and why it's there so that we can avoid this disastrous uh, the results of the of the state kind of getting out of hand and trying to bring the family under its authority. So then, if authority comes from the estate of the family, then what's the chief task or what's the role of the family that that God has given the family to do? Yeah, there there's probably two from the Garden of Eden that we want to we can really rejoice in: be fruitful and multiply. So the family is the place where children are conceived and born and raised, uh, protected, uh, enlightened, given uh, training of, to be good for, for earth and for heaven. So, so it's, the, it's for having children. And also it's the place of dominion. So the Lord says to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the world. And so that dominion is exercised, I mean, by us individuals, I suppose, but in connection to the family. So the reason why the Lord lets me put my name on something that's the seventh commandment, is the Lord says, okay, everything's mine, but you can put your name on it. And you can't take something that has someone else's name on it. 
the reason why he lets me, for example, put my name on a field is so that I can bring up out of that field some fruit for my children, for my family. Uh, the, the reason, so that all of the commandments in some ways are, are protecting um, and shaping the way that we have dominion over the world so that we can bless the, the family. A lot of people recoil, I think, at that idea of having dominion, but we should realize that that's the the whole purpose of of all of our vocations. So, for example, the brain surgeon has dominion over that little piece of brain that he's surgeoning when he's doing his work. Or I, I tell the, my kids, I, I'm trying to get this romantic idea in their heads about studying, is that when they study math, it's so they can have dominion over numbers. <laughs> now, that just sounds nice and romantic to me, but I, it hasn't. It has not really helped too much. I was going to say, is, but, it, is but that working? <laughs> no, but someday they'll tell it to their kids, you know. So that that's the that's success. So so that we're we're being fruitful and multiplying, and we're having dominion over the earth. That's the that's what belongs to the family. So family, it, it's interesting. We we mentioned right at the very beginning the two authorities: the authority of the sword and the authority of the sword of of the word. Both of them ought to be found in the Christian family. So parents have the authority of the sword, which sounds like you're grounded or go to bed or whatever. That, that's, you know, the family, the, 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 the father and mother are judge and police and FBI and all of those things all wrapped up into one for their kids. But they're also, the, the father and mother are the uh, priest and priestess of the home to bless the children with the Lord's word, with the wisdom and the comfort of God's law and gospel. And so every home... We, we have this often, every home is a castle, which is right. Every home is also a chapel, because both authorities are are found in, in the home. And it's a beautiful mix. I mean, you know, when we go outside the home, into the state, into the neighborhood, into the economic interactions, it's, it's somewhat cutthroat. But in the home, there's this government of, uh, at least as the Lord has ordained it, a government of charity, of, of peace, of community. Uh, you know, every home is a little commune, if you will. There's, I mean, that's communism is a horrible idea when it comes to the state, but it's actually a pretty good idea when it comes to the family, <laughs> you know, from each to their need and all this stuff. In fact, the home is a little commune, and it's also a little monarchy <laughs> or an oligarchy, so that, so that all these horrible governments that are, are disastrous out in the world actually are wonderful in the home because there's this there's this love and affection that binds the uh, family together. Now, you've talked about, of course, how God has designed things and written even into the very law of nature. But what happens when these get confused, when they get mixed up, when we don't regard the estates within their proper contexts? Especially how does the family tend to suffer when we do that? Yeah, well, the devil... So all of this is spiritual warfare, and the devil hates everything good, everything that God has instituted, including the family. The devil hates husband and wife rejoicing in one another. The devil hates babies. Boy, does he hate babies. And, and we see that probably all of, our, all of our cultural woes that we're facing, if you just could put them under the category of the devil hates babies, they all start to make sense. I mean, abortion, well, the devil hates babies homosexual marriage. Well, the devil hates babies. People transitioning from being a man and a woman to being an unfruitful copy of the opposite sex. Well, the devil hates babies. 
divorce. The devil hates babies. It's it, it's all a, the the devil fighting against babies. And there, and there's probably a number of reasons why the devil has such animosity towards babies. Uh, and and one is because he can't have any. It's a unique gift that God gives to to his physical creation and especially to Adam and Eve. And number two, in the very beginning, the Lord promised that the devil's head would be crushed by the baby of Eve. And so from that moment on, the devil's been at war with with every baby born and everything around babies. So so the, the, the estate of the family, marriage, children, family, obedience, the fourth commandment is under severe attack from the devil, always has been and always will be. So our calling to be faithful in those estates, a husband and wife, parent and child, a grandparent, grandchild, a student and teacher, blesser and blessed, those are all those vocations that the Lord gives us in that estate, that is, that is doing spiritual warfare. So, uh, so it's good to know that, that, like that as the base, that the family's always going to be under attack. In, in our day and age, it's under attack by what? By, by no-fault divorce, by contraception, which separates uh, intimacy from reproduction, from, uh, fr- from the idea that I belong to myself and not to the other, that marriage does not, in fact, make the two into one, but rather just brings two into close proximity to one another. That that marriage is the is is not a a joining of two compatible people for life, but rather is the is the expression of my own. How does uh, the uh, Bergefell decision say my uh, my own act of self definition? Oh Lord, have mercy. Mm-hmm. So it, it's under attack, particularly there. So we see all these attacks on on the family. What do we do though? It's it's really sometimes it's overwhelming when we think when we like look at all of the forces arrayed against what God has instituted, but then we come back to simply the good news that, well, the the Lord instituted the family, and it can't be destroyed. It is indestructible. There will be until the Lord returns in glory, uh, man and woman getting married and having children. And raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and so we, we can have this confidence that even though the the devil has arrayed all of his forces to fight against the family and the church and the state too, but we see it especially in our day in the family. Even though he's he's arrayed all these forces, he cannot overthrow what the Lord has built up. The, the family will stand, and so we're called to rejoice in this gift and to know that. Um, uh, that the that this is good. It's good for us to be husband and wife. It's good for us to be father and mother. It's good for us to be children of our parents and to honor them. It's good for us to be part of the family, and the Lord delights in it too, uh, and He forgives all of our sins ag- against these estates. So, what about people who, just by their own history, struggle with this concept of of family? Maybe because they've grown up without a father or a mother, or they've been abused or, or misused by their own family. Where do they find comfort in in this theology? We should know that some of the worst sins are sins committed in office. And so there's the result of of someone sinning in their own office, sinning against what they've been given to do, is a it hurts particularly bad. So this is we we saw this a few years back as an example when the police were accused of abuse that because the police are there to protect and when the abuse comes from the police rather than just from a thug it, it's worse. Or maybe the, a cleaner example is that 
if I'm walking down the street and some stranger comes up and punches me in the face, it might hurt. But if my dad comes up and punches me in the face, even though he's half the size of the stranger, it hurts worse because my dad has been the one person in the whole world who has been given the office of being my father. And the sins of the parents to the children, the sins of the children to the parents, they, they are um, they're just wounds that, that cup deeper. And that, so the devil wants to use it to twist up our conscience and use it to, to militarize us against God's institutions. You see this, for example, when you have children of, of divorce. Because, you know, I am my mom and dad coming together. And if my mom and dad say, well, that doesn't mean anything, we're separate now, well, what? You're, 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 uh, it's an existential crisis. You're undercutting my own reality, the thing that made me be. And so, so these sins committed. And so now, now what does the devil do? Is he comes to me in that wound and he wants it to fester. He wants me to be angry and he wants to militarize me against mom and dad, against marriage, against the family, so that I become like a heat-seeking scud missile to try to destroy that. And it shows up either in me sabotaging my own marriage or me not wanting to be married or, or whatever. So so we, we have to say, maybe there's two or three things to get after. Number one, that pain of someone abusing their authority is profound. And it hurts and it's dangerous and it is as we mentioned before spiritual warfare okay so let's let's just take it for what it is as a very very deep wound okay now the question is what has god called me to how can i be a steward a faithful steward of the sins committed against me and this is going to be very difficult because while we know that the abuse does not destroy the substance, but rather confirms it, it's very difficult for us to live that truth out. So I, if, if I am the victim of a father who abandoned me, or a mother who abused me, or family that was dysfunctional in any way, I recognize that the reason that hurts so much is because they were sinning against something that is real, the family. And I should not understand their sin as a destruction of the family, but pointing me to the reality and to the importance of that family. And now I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would, would give me, by his word and by his strength, the capacity to extol this particular gift, not to be angry, etc. Now, every person, it's part of just, and it's part of just becoming a mature and wise person, in fact, it might be, as far as I'm concerned, the, one of the most important things that we have to do to be wise and mature is we have to forgive the sins committed against us by our parents. Hmm. I mean, by our everybody, but by our parents, because every parent is a sinner and every parent sins against their children. Every parent knows that and confesses it all the time. Oh, Lord, have mercy for all the, for all the stupid nonsense that I've done to my own children. So every parent knows it, but every child, you, you, you know, you start by thinking that your parents can't do wrong, and then you realize, that, oh, that's not the case. And then you feel it, and then now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do? And when those sins are kind of accidental, uh, normal sort of sins, it's, it's not so tough to forgive parents. But when those sins are really bad, like, how could you? Then it's difficult. And the, and the devil wants to attack us 
to hold on to those sins committed against us. And the, and the deep trouble is that if we're holding on to those sins committed against us, then we are now making the argument in our conscience that sins should be held on to. And that militates against the forgiveness of sins in the gospel. So this is the difficult call of, of every um, child who, who's been hurt or abused in the family is to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean there's no temporal consequences. It doesn't mean that some people might have to be reported to the state. It doesn't mean that, that you just let the abuse continue. No, when the Lord forgives sins, he still executes temporal consequences. The two are not the same. But there's gonna have, there, there has to be forgiveness there. This is hard. And this is one of the hardest things that I think I have to preach as a pastor, that not only do we rejoice in our sins being forgiven, but we rejoice that the sins committed against us are also died for by Jesus. But that's a really important part of Christian maturity, and it's a really important part of extolling the gift of the family. Well, and thanks be to God that the family is the training ground where such things are exercised, as in the forgiveness of sins, confessing sins to one another. Now, my final question is, as our church is making a push for catechesis within the home and discipleship within the home, there is a tendency to want to relegate that to the church, to Sunday school. What place does catechesis have within the home and within our own church? How can we be supportive of, of families passing down the faith? Yeah, there's a, it's a beautiful passage in Deuteronomy 6 when the Lord sets all this up and instituted catechesis. Um, he says, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you are walking on the way, write it on the doorposts of your house. In other words, the, the Lord intends for it to be mixed up. And I think it's important. We, So I always am confessing that my own terrible catechesis as a father in the home, it's just, I mean, ugh, it's just, it's a constant battle. And you know, one of the the dangers is we kind of have a, a, a Facebook piety, and you look and you see all the other families that seem like they have it together, and all the children are like, they're they're like uh, you know four months old. They don't even know how to walk, but they're they're kneeling by the the cradle and folding their hands, and we're like, oh man, my family's a mess. Well, look, every family is a mess. So to know, so and we're all on the way. So we're just trying to make these improvements and trying to mix it in. So we're trying to we're trying to to say, hey, here's the Ten Commandments. Now, where do you see it? Where do you see it in the news? Where do you see it in everyday life? Where do you see it outside in the garden? Here's the creed. Where do you see it in the conversations with your friends and whatever's happening? Here's the Lord's Prayer. How do we pray that prayer and what does it mean? So that the, the, the main task of catechesis, especially for the dads, is to, try to, is to try to find those moments where there's an intersection with God's wisdom and the thing that's happening. Uh, so that's what the Lord has set us to do, which is kind of nice because it's, it's while you're on your way, and so you're just you're on your way already. You're already in the midst of stuff. So now how are you gonna how are you gonna mix that in? And it has to do with I think with cultivating a, a theological imagination in ourselves, so that if we can have something that's just rolling around in our own minds, uh, then you start to see the connections all the time. So to try to get those biblical things rolling around, and the and the catechism is really there for that. You, you can always just go to the Ten Commandments and wrestle with them, think about them. You can always go to the Creed and to the Lord's Prayer and, re- and wrestle with those. And so, so that's, I think, I think that's part of it. And to, and to know that the Lord loves your children more than even than you do, and he's going to take care of them. That's our confidence. I think we have this idea, like, I got to do this just right, 
or they're going to be lost forever. And that kind of that kind of fear probably backfires. Mm. It it probably, in some ways, it can become a, a self fulfilling prophecy. So we want to have a careful, thoughtful, but not fearful habit of trying to train up the children. Now, as a father yourself, Pastor, what's your greatest encouragement to fellow parents listening in? I think we we all we all want to be good parents. It's like. Uh, but the Lord has made sure that you, you're not. <laughs> you can't. I mean, you're a sinner, and you are going to sin against your, your children. Now, you don't. You should probably try not to do it on purpose, but that, you know, it's, it, it's going to happen. Okay, so the Lord, the first thing is that, the, that our sufficiency in all of these vocations that he gives to us, our sufficiency is in Christ, and he is merciful to us. So that just like we talked about how forgiveness reigns in the home, it starts with the, it starts probably with dad and mom too, but especially dad when he when you sin to say I'm sorry, but please forgive me, I sinned, so that we can all together rejoice in the Lord's mercy and that the Lord is calling and gathering and enlightening all of us together and bringing us all together to His church, and that is our that is our hope is in Christ, not in our not our sufficiency is never in ourselves, but only in Christ, and that's and that's our only hope. There you go, listeners, a good word for you. Thank you so much, Pastor, for uh, sharing your wisdom and being present with us today. You are very welcome. Thanks for the work that you are doing. May God continue to grant us a wisdom, not only to us, to the world, so that we can rejoice in his gift of life. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follower subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that discusses the life God has given and the people he has called you to serve right where you are in God's mission.